0: with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me, hello. How we doing? Oh, I'm back in the Swatsky studio. Do you see this beautiful studio behind me? You remember last week, I said that I was testing out live recording. I'm doing it again. It actually went okay last time, so I'm doing it again. And I have my beautiful Swatsky studio right right at my back. You can see it. How? Why I'm letting you see this beauty I don't know. You're spoiled. I don't even charge you to do this. Although, I do have a Patreon. Consider consider that. Now, to anybody who is following my saga of the coat, I, talked to, I mentioned a coat uh, last week, two weeks ago, and how Amazon needs to um, accept my coat that I need to return because it's too big on me, but I have surpassed the allowable return time. And they're like, oh, contact the manufacturer, and they're, that, that's the way. So I contact the manufacturer, and they're like, sorry, we can't do anything. It's Amazon. And so apparently there's no solution here. Although one studious listener of the show approached me and ge- told me that there is a solution to my problem, and it involves deceiving Amazon. So I don't know about the moral state of my listeners, but they're telling me to, to lie to Amazon to get a, my, the coat that I need, to get them to take it back. So, wow, I can't believe it. I can't believe this. Now, I, I am a beacon of integrity when it comes to businesses, okay? So no, I'm not going to have that. All right. <clears throat> anyway, thanks for that helpful suggestion. Uh, welcome to episode 22 of the City of the Great King podcast. I'm actually taking a break from the normal series that we've been doing. We've been doing a series called The Kingdom Builder. The attitudes and actions of productive citizens in the kingdom of God. And I'm enjoying that series. But I want to touch on something else. And I'm about to go on a trip. Uh, what if, About 12 hours. From the time of this recording, I will be on my way to the East Coast. So, I'm about to leave, and I wanted to talk about this before I go. So, next week I'm going to be posting a sermon. Uh, Please listen to that, by the way. Um, That was a sermon from last Sunday. And I want to talk about something that's been getting a lot of attention lately, and it's Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism has been gaining in the attention that it's getting. A lot of people are talking about it. Actually, there is a big an important new book that just dropped. It's called "The Case for Christian Nationalism" by Dr. Stephen Wolfe. He's a PhD at of Princeton and he just wrote a scholarly book on Christian nationalism. And a lot of people think they know what Christian nationalism is and are dismissing it right out of hand. Like, there's books about the uh, white supremacist Christian right and their nationalism. Like, there's books like that, and they don't sell very well. I wonder why. But this is a scholarly account of Christian nationalism. He makes the case that it is a faithful thing. Uh, I haven't read the book. It just came out. I'm waiting for the, um, the audiobook. When the audiobook comes out, then I will listen to it. But, man, this thing's 488 pages. Like... I don't know, you can't make your point in less than 300 pages, uh, you're asking a lot of the people, but when the audiobook comes out, I will read it, so I'm not going to be able to give the an entire account or go too deep into Christian nationalism, probably should read that book before coming to too hot of takes on it, and I would just challenge anybody who recoils at this idea of Christian nationalism or what immediately comes to your head is this white supremacist stuff you, i would just suggest to you that you probably don't have a very good grasp yet of what christian nationalism is probably uh, interact more with its proponents and what those who are arguing for it are actually saying and don't just dismiss it based on what the critics say uh, and i think christian circles can fall into that bad habit probably just as much as secular culture, where we'll just dismiss and attack, or attack and dismiss something based off of what a critic says, and not do our own research into what its advocates say. So don't do that. Now, if we think about Christian nationalism, I need to talk about this first, and then I'm going to get to the other point, which is the Reformation of worship. So this is titled Christian Nationalism and the Reformation of Worship. Now I have enough. I have have enough to talk about that this could turn into two. So if I see that my timer is getting into the 30, 35-minute mark, and I still got a ways to go, I I have a natural break point, and then I'll pick this up. It'll just be in two weeks. But uh, I will do that if need be, because this is important. This is an important thing. Think about nationalism, and then you're throwing in the prefix Christian on top of it nationalism, there's several definitions of what nationalism is, but essentially it's the promotion of your nation over against others. You want to see your own culture, your own society be promoted, uplifted, upheld, protected, whatever. It is the promotion of your nation over against another nation. So we are split off into nations. We're not all just one big nation together, but one has its own culture, its own borders, its own history, and we Uh, promote that over against others. So now you put the prefix Christian on it. Christian nationalism. So then it's how do Christians do the promotion of their nation over against all others. That's already right there. It can help some people's confusion over what Christian nationalism is. It's not Christianity becoming a nation per se. We objectively are already added to Christ's nation in the city of the great king. There's that title coming back again. But it is more, think about your nation. Now, how do Christians interact in that nation? How do you uphold and interact in the nation that you are in as a Christian? So that's, that can already help clarify for some people who are confused about what Christian nationalism is. So the movement seems to be, the movement of Christian nationalism, seems to be about defining what a Christian American does and thinks, what a Christian Canadian does and thinks, what a Christian Scotsman does and thinks, etc., for all the different nations. How does a Christian uniquely think and live in those individual societies? And I and maybe when I get to reading Stephen Wolf's book, I, I'm sure I will be sharpened a little bit in my own understanding of this, but this is how my understanding of it is. Now, when it comes to nationalism, the promoting of your own nation, I am not against nationalism, and neither is the Bible. Actually, the Lord is the one who created nations. You go back into Genesis, and you see the accounts of Noah and his sons, I believe it's Genesis chapter 10, and he starts talking about Noah's descendants, and if you count the amount of people that come out of the sons and the grandsons, and you you add it up, it comes to 70 nations who, who get made, and the Tower of Babel incident happens, and the Lord confuses their tongues and spreads them over the earth. Nations come. God created the nations, and then he told Abraham... Through you, all the families of the world will be blessed or all the nations of the world will be blessed, depending on your translation. But the idea is the same. All those who were separated before and went out into the world, they're all blessed. There's a, a way in which everybody is blessed through the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And so I'm not against nationalism. The Bible's not against nationalism, the promoting of your own. Nation. Now, there's obviously a poor way to do this. There's a very unfaithful way to do this. But the argument seems to be that there is a faithful way to do it, too. And I'm anticipating that's what Wolf's book is about. And by the way, um, I didn't mention this before, but how, one way we know that this is a very hot topic, hot-button issue, uh, not only am I hearing about Christian nationalism all the time, but if you go to Amazon.com and you pull up the case for Christian nationalism, this book just came out. Uh, a couple days ago, and you scroll down to product details in the best sellers rank in the church and state religious studies category, number one. In nationalism, number one. In category history of religion and politics, number one. So this is a already a bestseller in all of its categories, which is funny because if you go to the category of history of religion and politics, another... Uh, another guy came out with a book uh, regarding this type of stuff, and it was Andy Stanley, Not In It To Win It. (laughs) And uh, very quickly, Case For Christian Nationalism, Usurped Not In It To Win It. I mean, how do you sell Christians, how do you sell pastors on the idea that we just need to, oh, you know, we're just going to lose. We're not here to win anything. We're just, I'm just going to live a... just gonna be quiet, do my Christianity in the corner, just be in my church, and that's it. Uh, we're not gonna win anything, you know. That's let's just lay down and uh, and that's how I'm gonna live my life. Like, actually think about the fruit of that kind of thinking, or not, and not even just the fruit. Like, think of a pastor taking that idea that we're not in the, we're not in it to win it to win anything. Like, does your pastor actually believe that? Does he minister in that way? Like, do you want your pastor to think that, well, I'm not going to win people in my city to Christ. I, maybe I'll get a couple. If I only have 10 people in my church, well, that's just the way it is. We're not here to win anything. We're going to lose on earth. Like, nobody ministers that way. We believe and pray for our ministries to be effective, that God blesses our ministries. We believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful through the ministries of faithful men and women. So when you take this idea like you know we're just going to be losing and everything's going to go to crap here we don't need to worry about what's going to happen in the generations. Oh rapture could come any second now. When that's your thinking like you don't even live consistently with that when you minister. You don't minister as though you just can't win. You can't help counsel that couple. You can't add more Christians in your city. Like, That's not That's not even a mindset that a pastor should have at all. And I, I think that um, this whole philosophy of just lay down and, and don't be a, a bother to anybody and don't try to Christianize anything. I, th- I think that's that's a pretty useless, useless way to think, useless way to minister, and a pretty useless way to live. So I guess I'm not holding back today. <laughs> so it's a pretty big thing, Christian nationalism, and we're going to have to think about it a lot. And we're going to have to describe what we're talking about. And one of the things I'm going to tell you now is that any Christian who is serious about living a righteous life in the West, in our post-Christian West, in Europe, you try to stand for the truths of the Bible, you stand for the truth, you are going to be labeled a Christian nationalist actually made a post about this it's on the it's on the podcast facebook page i also tweeted it and this is what I, I tweeted i think it's i think it's pretty accurate the label christian nationalism is one in which any christian who desires righteousness in their nation will have it applied to them it is unavoidable no point in resisting it um and then i i get to the rest of the tweet later but we are being smeared. A lot of people, at least these detractors of this, are smearing Christians with this label if they try to protest abortion. Because in their minds, we are inappropriately mingling church and state. Or if we talk about how marriage can only be between a man and a woman, it can't be two men, it can't be two women, it can't be two, man, two men and a wo- and a woman. Like, marriage is what God says it is. If we're going to try to say that and live that way in our nation you are going to eventually have the label Christian Nationalist slapped onto you. Because this is what we do as people. We identify a problem, we ridicule it, and through our ridicule and mockery, we set it aside as though these are the crazies over here. Don't go over to these, and then whatever the term is. So, Christian itself, that term, Christian, was actually a mocking term when it was first used. It was not a badge of honor. It was to mock those people. Like, don't be like the Christians. Uh, their guy got killed. Uh, little, little did they know that you rose again. But it was the same thing with the Puritans. Puritan was not a not a glorious label to have applied to you. That was a that was an insult. They were mocking them. Uh, you guys have no fun. You have no joy. You just hate everything that's fun in life. And oh, the Puritans. Like, that's what it was. It was an insult. It was mockery. But then Christian, is, we redeemed that title. Like it, we take on that label, and it's like, yes, we are Christians. We, we go with Christ to the cross, and we go with him into heaven, into glory. And the Puritans, that that's not a bad label at all. That they sought purity in worship, purity of lifestyle, that we'd live honorable lives before God. So what they meant to be mockery ended up being a, a quite redeeming title, and I think it's going to be the same thing with Christian nationalism. Any Christian who is trying to seek um, righteousness amongst us and wants to be fruitful in ministry, you're going to be applied. You're going to be called a Christian nationalist, and it's like okay, let them call us that. They might have their ideas of what that means, and we might have our ideas of what that means. It doesn't really matter what they're calling you, the what matters is living faithfully in your nation because that actually matters. We're not just it down here to lose, but we actually believe that God's kingdom is effective and is spreading and he is bringing people into his kingdom. Uh, the, the, the church, Christ is guiding his church and he's told us to go in, he has all authority to go into the world, baptize and teach the nations. Is Christ going to fail in his mission? Uh, We don't believe that. Of course Christ is not going to fail in his mission. So they want to call us a Christian nationalist for living and thinking like Christians? Let them. Don't be scared of the label. The critics don't get to monopolize all terms. Okay, I think of um, some other terms that, or at least one in particular, that because it has this a certain connotation, we can't use it. I've told this to others recently, but the term Eucharist comes from Eucharisto in the Greek. That, that's the, the word, the Eucharist for the Lord's Supper, for you hold it up, you hold up the Eucharist, and the, it's the Catholic, it's a term that the Catholics took, and us Protestants, it's like we can't use that beautiful word, Eucharist, because people might lump us in with Rome and tra- transubstantiation in the Lord's Supper. I just, I, re- I reject that. I reject that we don't get to use words just because some people are attaching a t- some type of connotation to it. Um, they don't get a monopoly on key terms. So, in a sense, just stand for the truth. Yeah, we are Christians. We want our nation to be righteous, because a nation that honors God is going to be blessed by God. And this is Basic Christianity 101. And they want to call us Christian nationalists for it? Let them. Let them do that. But we're going to understand it in a proper way. And we're going to define it our way. So it's not going to be like you supremacist insurrectionists or whatever. That's what one of the books said. It was all about, I noticed in the January 6th, insurrection, these supremacist, Christian nationalists taking violence to do their insurrection. It's just absurd. I don't even want to tell you the title of the book so they don't get it, the attention. But um, is that, I mean, they're trying to lump us in to a certain mold, and that's what they'll do. They'll, they'll mock, and they'll try to make us look ridiculous, and we're going to joyfully serve Christ and contend for righteousness. Let's see who, which one wins long term. Uh, I'll take the righteous, joyful people who are blessed by God. Uh, winning long term. So, when it comes to Christian nationalism, I am not against Christian the idea of Christian nationalism as I have described it to this point. So the way that some other people want to describe it, I may I may not support that. But the way I've described it right now, I am in agreement with the idea. Um, and we're not going to be able to avoid the label. But I want to make a primary point and this is one to finish up my the the tweet that I started reading before this is the big point I want to be making and it is that true Christian nationalism begins with the reformation of worship so in my post after I said um, it's unavoidable no point in resisting the label I then say But true Christian nationalism is ecclesiastical first. When we worship rightly, we can point the nation rightly. Now, this does not mean we narrow the law of God and the kingdom of God only to the church. Far from it. No. His rule is in Christ's rule and his reign comes for every enemy and every nation. What it does mean is that any Christian nationalism that we try to promote that evades the reformation of worship will remain primarily a political or social movement first. And tweet. And I added a couple words into there because I can't help myself. So what I'm saying there is that we can be all about what I'm talking about here, Christian nationalism, the uplifting of righteousness in our nation, we can be all about that, but if we don't reform our worship, we don't worship rightly, it doesn't matter. We're just going to be another political movement that dies out, another social movement that gets people in on a cause, but doesn't get them in on Christ. And I, I think you can get people in with Christ and a cause. Um, but if we're going to have worship, by and large, the way that it is in the Western Church today in the twenty-first century, we are—we're not going to have an effective Christian nationalism. We're not going to be promoting um, true righteousness in our nation. We need to be worshiping God rightly, and I think that's very important because the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on worship—a lot of emphasis. On worship. And I already think that this is going to be a repeated topic in my life. I, I sense it. This idea of the, the reforming of worship is probably a long, multi-decade battle that I will be fighting. Um, I just sense the importance of this. And if we get this right, and th- then we are going to be blessed in so many other areas. Because it starts with how we respond to God. God already made the first step in, in his covenant faithfulness. He has his people. He has his church. He will preserve his church. He will preserve his people. So then it's us responding to that God. And if our response is all messed up and we're not doing what he, the, the basics of what he tells us, I think we learn already from the Old Testament that that, does, that never goes well. God was always faithful to Israel, But Israel, so quickly, eh, then they started worshipping on the high places. Then they started worshipping the Baals. Then they just did whatever was right in their own eyes. They did not fear God so quickly, and then the nation descends, and it downgrades, and it becomes wicked. So our response to God is enormously important. There is possibly nothing more important There is nothing more important than our worship of God. It starts with our worship. I know that right from the second commandment. The second commandment... um, Actually, I have it right here. What do you know? Uh, How did I know I was going to be right in Exodus 20? Uh, Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Second commandment, do not worship me through images, through statues, through carvings, through anything like that. Don't bow down to them. them. That's not how I want you to worship me. I... There's a way I want you to worship me, and do that. Don't do this. The principle we take out of the second commandment is that we worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped. And we know, again, from Israel's history, whenever they didn't worship God faithfully, properly, the way he laid out, they were punished. They were not blessed. They turned from God. Um, So worship, biblically, is extremely, extremely, Important. I also want to quote, um, this is from Reverend Daniel Hyde. He has a book called Welcome to a Reformed Church. He invokes the Westminster Larger Catechism question one, which I've read before on this, on this program. You know it. But um, the Westminster Larger Catechism asks the question this way, what is the chief and highest end of man? It answers, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. In short, this is Reverend Hyde, in short, we exist not only to give God glory as we speak to God in worship through prayer and praise, but also to enjoy him as he speaks to us in worship through word and sacrament. So the way that this reverend understands that answer uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is zeroing in on in worship through prayer and praise and through word and sacrament. This is about worship, how we glorify God and enjoy him. All of that is in the direction of God that that's worship. So when it says to glorify him, if we think of our whole lives are meant to point to, to uplift Christ, that, all falls under worshiping him that we are we are putting ourselves below we are submitting to and uplifting him he is going to increase we are going to decrease that's the whole mindset of worshiping god that's how you glorify him you worship him and how you worship him is glorifying him so there's a there's a lot of overlap in the relationship there and so that I, I think about how the bible gives so many principles in worship. At least it gives a lot of um, specifics in the Old Testament of how to worship. And there are fewer exact specifics in worship in the New Testament, but it's still, there the certain principles that are there, we must follow. Because in the Old Testament, especially if you read Leviticus 1, it talks about how the animal that's going to be sacrificed, has to be cut up in all these different ways, and this part gets put on the altar then to get burned, and then this part gets put on here, and you got to keep that part out, and this part you got to... Like, it does that for like eight different parts of the animal. God is very specific. This is how you sacrifice this animal. Then you get to the New Testament, and of course Christ fulfilled the, the sacrifices, and he is the eternal sacrifice. And so we don't have to have all those specifics that we needed in the Old Covenant, but there are still aspects of our worship that we have to always have in our worship. And I look at the, the landscape of modern worship, where we are in the church in the West, 21st century today, and I see a lot of deficiencies. I see a lot of ways in which we do not worship the Lord as he has told us he wants to be worshiped, Another term for that is the regulative principle of worship. You can look that up to study more about it. But let's talk about some of our problems in modern worship. Number one, how individualistic it is. If you think about it, we show up, we sit in a pew or a chair, we're staring at the stage. We, the only time our voices are used is in singing. It's practically it. Otherwise, whoever's up front is doing all the talking, so we're we're pretty silent. We don't do much with the people beside us. You just sit there. It's very individualistic. Um, so it's either mostly silent when you're at church, or it's like a rock concert. That's the other thing. We're putting on these, uh, putting on bands and light shows and sometimes fog machines. I know some of the more traditional people haven't experienced that, but. <laughs> Anyone with a charismatic background knows what I'm talking about. When you get these types of elements, or it's like a it's like a rock concert, people just jumping up and down and, and shredding on the guitar, and like you would have no idea you're in church. It's that's kind of what it's like. The lights are going crazy. I think about the music that we sing today, and I did a whole episode on on music. I encourage you to listen to that. I think it was let me change your mind about Christian music or something like that. And I just went through some of the top so-called Christian songs these days, and I showed just how lyrically shallow modern so-called Christian music is. It is so shallow. It's it's embarrassing, really. And it treats Jesus like a boyfriend, not the Lord of glory. It, it doesn't use the language that the scriptures use. It's like a modern pop song, just we're going to say that it's about God. It's not very helpful. It doesn't teach you much. Uh, it, it's emotionalism encapsulated. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Emotionalism encapturated. Encapsuled. I'll, I'll work on that. But that's what a lot of our modern praise music is. And this is primarily what churches sing. Now I know that there are a lot of traditional churches that still have hymnals and I love hymns. Believe me, I love hymns. But most churches are singing just this shallow just shallow stuff that doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't teach you much. It teaches you to be emotional and that's about it. And that that's very different than the way that worship through music has been done through any other time in Christian history in in covenant in covenantal history in in the Old Testament you read the songs that are there the song of Deborah or read the song of Moses and then later in in the New Testament you get the song of Mary and these are rich songs like it's not this what we're getting today it is rich and deep and challenging and glorious. And then of course, we get 150 songs in the books of in the book of the Psalms that they sang. The, the Jews when they worshiped sang these in their worship. And you go through the Psalms, all 150, and they are poetic, and they are deep, and they are personable, they're challenging, they're rich. They are theologically intricate. Uh, it just... And then it's, emotion, you get the emotions out of that. So it's not built on the foundation of emotions. But the emotions will come because it's on a much more solid foundation, which is on the truth of God. So we are... And and what singing is, it's... Um, music is the, glorify, the glorifying of words. Right? So... I can tell you a propositional state a propositional truth, just a statement, something that is true. God is Jesus is Lord.
1: You know, and that's a
0: very true and an incredible statement as it is. Jesus is Lord. But you put it to music, and then, now you're gonna glorify those words. And when you sing something, it, it's a altogether different type of teaching avenue than just saying it. I think I quoted this before in the in that earlier podcast episode about music but somebody once said I don't remember who that music is the language of the soul and I don't care who said it but that is more accurate than we realize what you sing determines a lot about how you think what your attitude is like what your emotional status is it's so easy to remember lyrics it's so hard to remember chapters of the bible But you can memorize a Bieber song or a Taylor Swift song or whatever catchy modern Christian praise song there is when it when it's put to music it speaks to us in a deeper way than just a statement so it's really really important what we sing very important and the new testament talks about the singing of psalms hymns and spiritual songs so I'm definitely not going to get to my practical tips or, or practically reforming worship today, but we'll get when we get there. That's going to be part of it: the threefold singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But these days we don't do that. We mostly just do spiritual songs, which is whatever any modern song is. And some do hymns. Some do hymns only, but we need all three. So there's that. Music is. Uh, in a very sorry, sorry state. Uh, One more point on the music. If you try to build a theology out of our modern music, that's like trying to build a theology out of modern radio preaching. Right? Like, if you turn on whatever the, whatever preachers are on the radio, you're not getting good stuff nine out of ten times. You're getting, well, I think I've made the point already. So it's going to, it's just like that. If, you're, if that's what you're singing, it's like you're getting radio preaching. It's, it's basically the same thing. So, a lot of issues with music. I think we've also moved away. Many churches have from the Bible's instructions regarding pastors, preachers, who can do so. Um, sorry, but women are not permitted to be preachers over men. They're not permitted to be pastors over men. The New Testament is so clear on this no matter how much our modern sensitivities want us to back away from standing firm on that or to just affirming that women can or that God has permitted them to preach over men. You are setting yourself completely apart from all of Christian history. You are setting yourself apart from all of Jewish history. The Old Testament didn't permit it. The New Testament doesn't permit it your modern argumentation comes more from enlightenment thought than it does from biblical thought it's it's sad but a lot of churches want to be modern and not biblical and that's one of the ways it shows once you start a once you get away from what god has clearly said is a defined marker that this is for qualified men to do once you're willing to move past that it's really not a whole it's just a matter of time before you do that with other parts of scripture and that's why it's not surprising when churches which bend on that end up bending on what God says marriage is and eventually they'll bend on what God says gender is because once you no longer have and believe in the authority of God's word you're you're right for the pickings of modernity or post-modernity. So that's another way that we are deficient in modern worship. There are a lot of ways we are deficient in the Lord's Supper. And I'm already running out of time, so I think this is where I'm gonna pick up in uh, in two weeks' time. We're gonna pick up, we're gonna discuss more of the problems in modern worship, and then we're gonna go into what worship fundamentally is especially on the lord's day and then i'm going to talk about practically reforming the church in the 21st century and going forward um and connect that back to the idea of christian nationalism so that's where we're going i'm gonna i'm gonna close it here i want to thank you for listening this is uh i think going to be some of the more important things that i say out of all the episodes that I have. And like I said, I'm going to repeatedly talk about this issue because I think it's that important. Let me know what you think. My comments are always open. My personal messages are open. I know that some people don't want to comment publicly and they've said that, so I've received private messages. Uh, Those are welcome. I I love to interact uh, privately, publicly, whatever. Thanks for listening. Uh, God bless you. Go in the nations. Goodbye. (laughs)